Welcome to another episode of Live with Bitcoin, where we delve into the human side of Bitcoin by chatting with one Bitcoiner at a time to discover their life stories, personal growth, and challenges through the lens of Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian Jane. Good to be back for another episode. Today, we have the pleasure to have Matteo Pellegrini, the founder and CEO of Orange Pill App. Orange Pill App is a mobile application with the mission to connect as many Bitcoiners as possible in real life. It focuses on empowering the social layer of Bitcoin, just like what we do here at Life with Bitcoin. Matteo was born and raised in Italy, but now lives in the US. He has a background in technology and startups and has been down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin since 2018 after reading Sifidin's uh, The Bitcoin Standard. Thanks for joining us today, Matteo. Thank you, Vivian. Thanks for the invite. You built an app called the Orange Pill app. So let's start with your own journey of being orange pilled. Uh, would you share with us a brief story about yourself for your days before you discovered Bitcoin? Yes, no problem. So I was born in Italy and then uh, classic uh, childhood. Uh, I was really interested in economics and slash business, I guess. So I got a, I studied economics at the university. In the meantime, I had a company. Uh, my first company I started when I was 19, which was, uh, you could say, uh, fashion, e-commerce, uh, eBay, kind of that kind of stuff, very successful. And then I sold uh, my half of the company to my co-founder, I guess, which was my friend. It was very young, you know. 2004, then moved to London to become a musician. I didn't become a musician, uh, but I started another company uh, in 2008, uh, which was uh, a very large, it ended up being a very large company with a shipping e-commerce, uh, still, still exists today. Um, then I sold that in 2012, moved back to Italy uh, for a year. I was going to do Uber in Italy before Uber, literally like six months before. Uh, and then unfortunately that didn't work because the technology was not good enough. So after that, I moved to New York uh, and I had a company slash technology for indoor food delivery that I ended up working with the biggest theater company on Broadway called Schubert. A lot of fun. Uh, then I sold technology to them and then I moved to Los Angeles. I took a break from business slash startup for maybe six years. Yeah, six years, 2016 till 2022. I took a break. I did some real estate, some sales, that kind of stuff. And then in 2022, I, I had the idea of how do we find Bitcoiners in real life? Like, how do we solve that problem? And that's how I got into creating the Orange Lab. So that's my background. I heard that you have an academic background in economics. How was your yes. university years like studying economics? Well, it was government economics. I don't think <laughs> in my three years of studying economics, I don't think I have ever heard of Austrian economics mm. at the university. That's not surprising. Pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure I would remember, although, you know, it's a long time ago now, but still. 
Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed studying economics. Uh, I was very interested. I would read the book before class. Uh, I was, you know, I was very passionate about pretty much the psych. More the so for me, economics is the, it's psychology. Why do people uh, spend their money in a certain way instead of another way? Which you know, it's psychology pretty much. And so, uh, you know, I was very, I was very interested in in those kind of uh, aspects of economics, less the math stuff. I wasn't not, I wasn't not that good at math, like statistics, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I I enjoy studying government economics because uh, I, I didn't know there was another branch of economics. Because that was obviously before you discovered Bitcoin. So in hindsight, yes. do you think your your extensive study in economics helped your understanding of Bitcoin later on? No, zero. <laughs> How come? It didn't help at all. What? Because uh, well, because in government economics, money is issued by the government. You know, so so when you see a form of money like Bitcoin that is issued by not a government, then if you've been trained or told that money can only come from government, then okay, this doesn't work. In fact, I heard about Bitcoin in 2012 or maybe even 2011. Uh, I remember the price was $5, so it was very early days. And I thought it was a scam, in part because I have a background in economics, in fiat economics, um, because I was always very, like, uh, at, I was always up to pace with technology in general, because I had technology companies, e-commerce, and that kind of stuff. But I didn't get Bitcoin until 2017, when I was. And Naval Ravi came from AngelList, which I knew from outside of Bitcoin. He he posted that thread, uh, very famous thread, and I read it. And that's when I start wondering if Bitcoin maybe was not a scam because Naval would not promoting a scam. Um, so it took me basically four years to even pay attention to Bitcoin from the first time. I heard about it in 2012. Is there any specific example you can give us that you really did believe back then when you were going through the program um, and later on found it just, just doesn't make any sense? I mean, I believe everything they told me. Like I was 19, 20, like, mm. you know, there's no, um, yeah, there was nothing in the back of my mind. It doesn't make sense to me. Then I've learned about Austrian economics which was a big shock to me because, you know, it's like, you know, up is down and down is up mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And then, uh, and then, and then things start making way more sense because I had businesses since I was 19. Um, so I, I experienced in real life, the reality of business, the reality of supply and demand. And then you can apply supply and demand to everything. Like the same with money. There's a supply and demand of money. 
if you increase the supply and the demand stay the same, that means the value of the asset goes down. So it's the same concept with government prints money. Unless you have more, unless you have increased the demand, then the, the value of what's been created, like money, has to go down. Mm-hmm. And so in Austrian economics, they say, well, the government should be out of the business of printing money altogether, which was never even, uh, <laughs> just never even a concept, like, you know, in fact, if I said that to my professor, they would think I'm crazy. Like they would think now because you need inflation and you need, uh, you need to stimulate the economy and that kind of stuff. They, they, they do believe it's not like they're making people believe that. Like it's, it's, uh, like one of my uncle teaches economics at the high school level and, uh, I cannot convince him of Bitcoin. I can't, it's just, I can't. And I've tried many, many times. What is his side of the argument? He cannot comprehend that there could be money as a government. It just doesn't compute. So, so he, yeah, because I mean, it, it's more articulate, it's more articulate than that, but the, the bottom line is that the government should be in charge of, uh, mine. We should money to stimulate the economy, to get to get the economy out of crisis. When in reality, it's the opposite. But whatever. See, this is the thing: the debt, if it's repaid with cheaper unit of accounts, then the debt doesn't matter. Mm. That's his argument. I mean, that's um, uh, MMT. That's uh, modern monetary theory. It's the same argument, pretty much. Um, which, uh, I mean, I think it works in the short term, obviously. I mean, we've seen it work for almost 50 years, although it works because you have technology advancement, productivity goes up, and so you can, you can repay the debt with productivity. That's really, the, that's really what's going on here. It's not that you printed money, and so the debt is cheaper to repay. It's because productivity goes up and technology goes up which then uh, you can repay the debt just because you're creating more value in the economy. That's the real, that's the real reason, but they don't get, understand, they don't understand the link between productivity, deflation, inflation, they don't get it. So the one trick that I've learned is this. If you ask a a Keynesian economist, hey, what do you think of free markets? And what do you think of, uh, Centrally planned markets. Usually, I mean, not usually, all the, yeah, the markets should be free because otherwise you have a, a misallocation and distortion and this and that. Then you ask them, okay, what about money? Why is money centrally planned? And then they go into cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And that to justify that money can be centrally planned although everything else needs to be not centrally planned. Because obviously money is part of the economy. It's 50% of every transaction. Uh, so their contradictions so start to appear. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's the only trick that, 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 that stop, let's say, my uncle in his truck. They say, oh, you know, then he start. He has to think, he has to think why centrally planning is bad everywhere else except 
with money. <laughs> Do you think it's easier for people with an academic background of economics to get Bitcoin in general? No, it's not. It's the opposite. It's harder because you have to unlearn first, and then you have to learn yourself. So you have to be you have to be intellectually curious enough to kind of uh, you know debate in your head if what you've learned and what you paid to learn and spend years learning is actually BS. If you were to go back to university today and redo your degree, would you would you have done economics with what you know today? No. And what no, would you have absolutely. done? Computer science. Uh, interesting, because you've described yourself as a non-technical founder. Yes. Um, so would you? So in this case, you you would wish that you're you're actually coming from a technical background, then? Of course, It'll make my life much easier. Well, talking about entrepreneurship, it, it seems like you're you're dabbled into a, a lot of different ventures, and a lot of them are uh, some of them at least were were successful at a very young age. Did you grow up in a family of entrepreneurs? Like, were you were you how were you were you shaped early on to be? Because you you said you were an entrepreneur since 19 years old. So where did you get that influence from? That's a good question. I guess one of the reason is because I'm very independent by nature, and so. If you're independent by nature, you have more desire to not be employed. Like you don't want to, you don't want to be employed. If you're independent by nature, so that's one of the reason. And then another, again, I was always been fascinated by business and learning why people spend money in a certain way and this and that. And then uh, my first business, was, honestly, was an accident. Like my friend was a DJ mm -hmm. and he was teaching me how to be a DJ. So we were doing like, we were doing like, like he was teaching me, right? Yeah, because he's out, they would teach me how to DJ, but it was like three, four years older than me. And then one day he told me about Alibaba. Huh. And so do you know about Alibaba? No, I don't know about, I was 18, I don't know. And that's how we started the business. You know, we were buying stuff from Alibaba. Mm -hmm. In China, in in uh, Pakistan, and then get the stuff shipped to Italy, and then we sell it on eBay. So I would go to as a nineteen years old boy, I would go to Western Union, and and wire thousands of dollars every week. And the guy, the Western, said, "What?" They say, "Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure?" Like you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I said, yes, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, but it was very, it was, yeah, it was very crazy. Um, so I don't really know what I got it. Maybe I got some influence, uh, maybe some movies I watched, but I couldn't really tell you. Do you believe um, entrepreneurs are born or made? Definitely born. Ah, interesting. So you think the very fundamental nature of the person that would determine whether they're an entrepreneur or not? It's, it's, so I think you need to have certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. Like you need to be able to take risks a lot. You need to be able to, uh, to be independent, to be uh, creative enough to come up with products that people want to buy. You can learn it, like pretty much everything you can learn. Like you can learn to be a singer if you put the time. But there's some people that are just born with better voice. Mm. And you're never going to be able to compete with them no matter how much you train.
Um, so there are some natural talents and and predispositions that you need to have to be. Uh, and also, I mean, biologically speaking, it wouldn't make sense if everybody was an entrepreneur. Yeah, it, that's it wouldn't work. You cannot have a system where everybody is an entrepreneur and you cannot have a system where even the majority, you know, and it wouldn't, it just wouldn't sustain itself. Right. The entrepreneur gene then. You can learn to be an entrepreneur for sure. But I think if you are uh, predisposed to be an entrepreneur, obviously you have an advantage. Yeah, for sure. And uh, entrepreneurs, they hustle and the, the hustling is a big part of, of being an entrepreneur and, um, Oftentimes, idea is one thing and execution is, is the other thing and perhaps the more important thing because you can have a great idea, but you have to execute yeah. it in a way that's productive and involves allocation of resource and being able to um, grow with what you've got and then scale from there. There's a lot of hustling and problem solving involved. Can you tell us some of the biggest takeaways that have prepared you with the Orange Pill app? Like one rule of thumb that I use when people tell me their ideas, if if they say, "Oh, you have to sign Andy," I say, "I don't, I don't even want to listen to your idea." Right. And when they say that, I say, "Don't even tell me your idea. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't like if you think your idea is so ideas count for nothing, really. So it's all about the execution of the ideas and also." Most of the time, your original idea is never the right one. Mm. Um, it's very rare that you have an idea and then you go execute the idea and then you say, oh, okay, pretty much everything that I saw ended up being true. So ideas count very little. Uh, so yeah, so don't get married to an idea. Think about the execution and think about... Um, it's, look, business is very simple. Honestly, it's, it's there's nothing secret about it. People have problems, yeah, and people would pay for you to solve their problems. Exactly, that's what business is all about. Right, that's as simple as that. If you solve a problem, you will get paid. Yeah, totally. If you don't solve a problem, you will not get paid. So, um, and sometimes people think their problems. Everybody has it. Because obviously there's a bias. Everybody's like me, um, but most you know most likely it's not the case. So you have to go out and do research. Or you know, in my case, so for example, in Orange Pilaf, I I knew that people wanted to meet other Bitcoiners because I've been in Bitcoin long enough, and I met enough Bitcoiners, and I'm I'm the users of the app that I've created. Mm. It's me. I'm not creating this app for anybody else. In the Orange Pilaf. One of the advantages that I had is that I knew this problem existed and I knew it could be solved with technology. What have I learned from my previous experience? Uh, well, one, okay, so that's one thing that I've learned is that you need to have great developers. You need to, you need to be able to create the product, which is obvious, but sometimes it's not. Uh, so, for example, the taxi app idea that I had or that I developed, it didn't work because the, it because the technology didn't work. And I didn't even know that technology could not work because all of my previous business were successful. 
you learn more from failure than success, way more. Another thing that I've learned is that the ca- you should always listen to the customer problem, but almost never listen to the customer solution. Mm. Because yeah. usually customer, they're not good at solving the problem. Most of the time, whatever you built it, the users, the customers, they would tell you, hey, I have this problem. And then it's your job to go and solve it. Right. Yeah, for sure. And if you start listening to customer too much, you're going to lose focus. You're going to lose focus of what what's valuable and what's not valuable because you just want to please the customer, which is natural. You want to please the customer because especially if they're paying you. Like if they're paying you, so they they need to get what they want. But, you know, this, there's a famous phrase from Henry Ford. If, if I asked what people wanted, they would have told me I want a faster horse. Nobody would have said, yeah, I want a car. Because the car didn't exist. Mm. So sometimes you have to think, you have to build uh, products that people don't even know they want. Because yeah, they don't exist sure. yet. Yeah. Um, so listen to customer problems, but then you have to solve the problem. So mm. that's, that's one lesson that I've learned. And then there's a book that I tell everybody to read. Uh, it's like like people that join Orange Pill Up, I make them read that book. Oh, yeah? Or if they want, or, yes, it's a mandatory book to read. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to join the company. And it's called The 22 Laws of Immutable Marketing, mm, okay. which is one of the best books I ever read on business by far. Um, yeah, it's a great, put in the 80s. And it predicts a lot of stuff because it's human nature, you know. So if you understand human nature, you can predict a lot. Uh, so that book is all about pretty much like you have to focus on one thing only and don't don't confuse your users. So I'll give you an example, Orange Pill Up. So, we, so in Orange Pill Up, it's all about making connections in, real, in, in the real life, in, like offline, going from online to offline. That's kind of the goal of Orange Pillow. Now, people tell me pretty much every day, hey, you should do this. Hey, you should do that. Hey, all the time. I got ideas coming at me every day. And one example, like one episode, so at one point, I said, well, maybe we should put the price of Bitcoin on the app and that would be an excuse for people to use the app, which sounds good in theory. But then... You read the book, and, and, and that's a mistake. That's a mistake that pretty much every company does. Even Apple does that mistake. Even Tesla. It's just human nature to start thinking, oh, you know, I've been successful doing X. Now I should do X plus Y. Because, no, you should just focus on what you're doing and just double down, double down, double down. The moment you start doing other products, it's when you lose focus, the user get confused about your company. You have the, the vision very close to you. Yeah, well, you need to. In order to be successful, you need to create some, t- some experience that the user can only have on your platform, on your product, with your product. If you don't do that, you're not going to make it. So what is something unique that you can do on Orange Club? You can meet people nearby. They're in Bitcoin. You cannot do anywhere else. You just can't. 
I heard about your um, face of doing shit coins um, on the other podcast, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, like besides the part of lost money, because it's hard to, if you think about Bitcoin to a no coiner, it's a very, it can be very disturbing for how complicated it might have seemed. Um, and it can be a very complicated concept for someone who's not already versed in or interested in economics and society and all that, how, how that functions. Um, and there's so much noise out there with different coins and it's almost like you need to, for some people, you have to go through that phase to gain a real conviction and see for yourself. There's no second best. Right. Um, so I think it's all a learning curve in a way, um, just with some expensive tuition, I guess. Um, but in the long run, yeah. you'd be better off to have that phase earlier on than wondering That's about, true. you know, how it would like, um, to, to trade these other options and then towards the later end of your, your journey kind of, you know, the, the, the timing does matter, I think in this case, and it's good that you got rid of it quickly before you have your conviction and be able to really focus on building an idea around Bitcoin instead of other areas. So I think there's huge value. It's kind of like, honestly, now that you made me think about it, it's kind of like my entrepreneurial career. It's the same, like you have success and you have failure. Mm. And then the, from the failure, you learn a lot and then you can have success again. So the shitcoin phase, obviously you don't. So the best way to learn why Bitcoin is unique, it's by doing shitcoins, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like if you go vegan and then you feel sick. And I say, yeah, okay, veganism doesn't work. I tried. I know for myself it doesn't work. So, you know, I'm whatever. I, I, I don't do that. But if you never do that, you might think, oh, you know, it makes sense or maybe this makes sense. Yeah. But it's always good to learn. I mean, it's ideally you can learn from other people's mistakes. Mm -hmm. That would be, that's what smart people do. Like you learn from people's <laughs> mistakes, other people's mistakes. And then... Uh, but you don't learn better. You cannot learn more than from your own mistakes. You know, oh, there's no better teacher yeah, for sure. than, than your own failure. So the fact that I had a shit current phase, then now it gives me the core, the conviction of building an app only for Bitcoiners. Because to be honest with you, and I've, you know, people have told me, oh, you should do the same exact app for Ethereum. People in Ethereum. Of course, yeah. Which wouldn't take much. <laughs> I would change the name, I would change the colors. Although you have to do the social media promotion, whatever. But technologically, it doesn't. Then you instead of paying Bitcoin, you're paying with Ethereum. Um, and apparently, there are more people in Ethereum than Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, Ethereum has all the other layer two shit coins, whatever. So from a business standpoint, if, if I, if I didn't care about Bitcoin, it would make perfect sense to have an Ethereum app. But I'm pretty sure that Ethereum is not going to last long enough. It's, 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 so building on Ethereum, it would be like building on a sinking ship. Mm. 
that I, you might, you might be able to make money in the short term. Yeah. You know, today Ethereum works, I guess, I don't know. Uh, but it, it wouldn't be a sustainable business that you can run for te decades. Like if you build on Bitcoin, uh, of course, Bitcoin could fail tomorrow. It's very unlikely, but you know, technically it could fail tomorrow, like pretty much everything else. But if you have conviction that it will not fail and it's probably going to replace fiat currency and this and that, and there's always going to be more Bitcoiners because it just makes sense. It's just, it just a function of time and education. And then once people go through that, you know, once you, once you have Bitcoin maxi, you're never going to be not a Bitcoin max, as far as I can tell. What is the problem that Bitcoin solves? Fiat, which it's most likely the biggest problem we have as, a, as humans. You know, the fact that government can extract time and resources and energy from, from citizens at will. People don't even know what's going on, inflation. They don't even understand where it comes from. Uh, and that these has repercussions that are very profound. You know, you can go down very rapid holes like diabetes, cancer, climate change for sure, uh, which then create cancer, pollution. So fiat money, it's at the foundation of, I would say, maybe 90% of problems that we have as humans. So, if that's true, and if Bitcoin is the solution to that, it, then Bitcoin has to be the biggest thing ever by default. Mm -hmm. So, of course, people, before they get to this point, it takes time and it takes learning, but it's not that complicated. It's not quantum physics. All right, so let's talk about the Orange Pill app. Uh, I've been really enjoying the, the app um, and I've had many conversations with Bitcoiners. Um, I remember when we first connected on there, I was telling you how I was, I was blown away by how user-friendly it was and the whole process of signing up um, so seamless and, and really easy. And boom, it's a world of um, Bitcoiners just simply appears. Um, and then you just mentioned that originally you were thinking about building a dating app for Bitcoiners. And then um, I remember you said, air quote, women in Bitcoin is more finite than Bitcoin itself. Why Why do you think um, this is the case? Is that the reason why you specifically shift um, the focus from, from dating to, to social? Um, well, even if there were, honestly, even if there were, let's say 50% of women in Bitcoin, I will still make Orange Fill Up as a, a social network mm -hmm. because it's a much bigger, it's a much bigger mission. It, you know, mm -hmm. um, connecting people in Bitcoin for dating plus friendship plus networking plus events plus we're gonna have a marketplace where you can buy products uh, from Bitcoin company whatever. It's a way bigger. It, it's a bigger company. It's a bigger mission. It's a more exciting adventure than just building a dating app. Uh, but of course, there are no women in Bitcoin. Now, why there are no women in Bitcoin? I mean, it's it's uh, it's quite obvious. It's quite obvious the same reason why there are no women in gambling. 
Meaning there are more men in gambling than 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 women. There are more men in crime than women. Because uh biologically men are more wired to take risks than women. And so um which is very good reason pregnant, spent nine months, you know, with a big belly, that kind of stuff. And so Bitcoin is, it's, it's still, I mean, it, the volatility in Bitcoin is very high, is even today. At some point it will go down. I mean, it's already going down, but what you still, I mean, it went from 69 to 15 in six months. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like 2022. So that's last year. So the volatility, so yeah, the so women are less risk taking than on average. Women are less risk taking than men. For very good reason. That's my thesis. What do you think? Well, I, I think it has to do with a lot of the technical part of, of Bitcoin because there's there's Bitcoin can be very technical. Like the, the technology behind it, um, how blockchain works. Uh, I remember when I first got into Bitcoin and I was listening to this podcast kind of explaining blockchain one-on-one and how the block works and how you mine and it was very complicated and confusing for me and that was an instant instant turn off i guess in a way because it, i feel like i'm i'm my brain because i'm not i'm not a technical person i feel like this is something that beyond my understanding and it doesn't necessarily interest me the technology side of it um so i was kind of taken aback from it and i i do you think a lot of people would share that um, argument yes. of, of the technical side of it? It's not something that they care about personally or well-versed. Um, and then the other side is, um, you're right, that it, it really depends on the personal um, level of risk-taking. Um, but I, I just... I, and I also, I think there's not enough... Um, intuitive content out there to talk about Bitcoin on the personal level. And this is um, basically why I'm starting the podcast is because there's a lot of podcasts out there about Bitcoin and talk about price predictions and talk about uh, my so micro analysis. It's very, yeah. it's, it's not, let's put it this way. It's not personal, personally relatable. And it can, right. it can, if you only talk about price and then talk about how chaotic everybody is with bank falling down and it creates anxiety and it creates fractions right. versus if you, if you have content about Bitcoin on the topic of personal growth, on the topic of how Bitcoin has facilitated personal transformation and education and financial freedom. And the specific use case of how people in many places are using it out of necessity, then I think it's it's a stronger argument to, for people to even remotely start to think about it. And I tweeted the other day and I said, um, maybe it's an unpopular opinion, um, but I actually believe that if you read about um, things on uh, sociology, psychology, and anthropology, it will actually help you orange peel yourself or other people faster than if you have them to read economics. Um, the argument lies in 
we are fundamentally we're all humans, and maybe people from from the history that it's very hard for us to relate to on a societal level. But fundamentally, we're all humans. Like we crave connections, we crave. Um, stability. Sometimes we have, we want to have the safety net, and these things are important for women too. But this side of this side of the the argument of Bitcoin is not as well presented as the financial side or、um, technical side. So part of why I'm doing this is to、um, shed light on the human side of Bitcoin so that. Um, to hopefully inspire more people and more women to to personally relate to a lot of the stories that we have on here,、um, and I believe this way it's a. I hope it's going to contribute to a greater population of、uh, women Bitcoiners. And I think for now, it's only for now that there's less women in Bitcoin.、Um, in no time, there's going to be way more.、Um, that's that's my side yeah, of the argument. Yeah, that'd be great.、Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great.、Uh, yeah, talking about price, it's very boring,、uh, and it kind of misses the point、mm-hmm. of Bitcoin. Yeah.、Uh, in fact, I block on Twitter. I block everybody that talks about the price of Bitcoin <laughs> immediately. Right. If you, it's just like it's a waste of time. It's a once you get to a certain point, you understand that the price in fiat. Of something that is supposed to replace fiat,、mm-hmm. it doesn't make any it's sense. It's arbitrary. Like it, there's no point. Well, it just you're measuring something that is, and you're measuring a new system from within the old system, which is what Jeff Poos does all the time, right? You cannot measure a new system from the old system. You just can't. What is the price of Bitcoin in salt? Do you know? No, <laughs> but salt used to be mounted,、mm, right. and we don't measure anything in salt anymore. So,、um, yeah. So, you know, we we are either right or we are either wrong. There's no in between here. There's no. So Bitcoin either wins or lose.、Mm. It's a very binary scenario. Bitcoin either becomes the global reserve currency. You can still have fiat on top of Bitcoin, and I think you're already seeing those things coming out with Fedmint, eCash. You can still have fiat on top of Bitcoin, but then you would have a base a base money that is fixed, and you know blah blah. Yeah, so that's the destiny of Bitcoin, or it just fail. It just we're all crazy. We all Uh, we are insane, literally insane people that think that money can be outside of government and it shouldn't be manipulated, and it would be much better if there was a form of money that is just fixed, that you can anchor everything else on top of it, and then you have deflation, and then standard of living goes because technology goes up, productivity goes up, but everything is going to cost cheaper, housing is going to go down. Which you're gonna have less homeless and less crime, you know. In theory, it's a much better world.、Mm, for sure. Now,、yeah. sometimes you have unintended consequences. Not sometimes, always. When you 
when you play with systems, when you play with a lot of variables, you're always going to have unintended consequences. So maybe we're going to be uh, in a Bitcoin standard, and then we're going to find out, oh, this is, we didn't see this down. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, something will happen. I don't know, but I'll, you know, there's a problem that I see all the time, and I call it the problem of the fish and the water. There's two fishes that meet in the morning, and one fish asks the other fish, how is the water today? And the other fish says, well, what is water? What is water? <laughs> yeah. Right? Which is, if you're inside a system, it's almost impossible to, un- to see mm. what the system does. And big corners, by the way, like big corners have the same exact problems all the time. When they talk about governments, when we talk about taxation, is the fish and the water problem. Yeah. That's the value of uh, try everything once. And then you, you have to, because sometimes something yeah. seems well and good in concept. And once you're actually living it, it's, exactly. it's another story. It's the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Kind of coming back to the sh- shitcoin phase is that you have to have that phase in order to see it yourself. Because right. otherwise, it's all well right. and good in concept. And you may wonder and you have this itch in your, on your mind that's, oh, what if, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is that, you, the problem is that you're not going to look for, if you're, if you're a communist in, in, in Boston, mm-hmm. you're not going to move to China, right. most likely. Yeah. Or, 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 I don't know, uh, Cuba. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do right. that. And then see for yourself. And then they, oh, okay, you know, yeah, okay, it makes sense that you have capitalism and free markets and this <laughs> and that. Uh, and so you're going to think, you're going to ascribe all the problem of the system that you live in, let's say capitalism, yeah. as problems. And you're going to imagine there is a system with no problem whatsoever. And so that system that doesn't exist, or if it does exist, is actually not what you think it is. It's we should all strive to be in that system. Unfortunately, this is very human, and big corners do this all the time when they talk about taxation and government and, and decentralization and self-sovereignty, which are all good concepts in theory. In concept, yeah. it's great to be self-sovereign. Now, if you're in a jungle and you have lions that are about to eat you alive, yeah. maybe... Just maybe you would like to have a government that has police or 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 a forest guard, you know. But because we live in in a, in a society that doesn't have that problems anymore because they've been solved before, mm-hmm. then you think, oh, but the government does this, which obviously I know yeah. the government does all the things that are bad. But you need to think, okay, what would happen if there was no government? And realistically, what would be the second order consequence and the third, you know, it's, it's fish, the fish in the water. For sure. So the app was launched just last year at uh, Pacific Bitcoin at LA, I think. Yep. Um, so it's it's not a long time. Um, today, do you mind sharing with us how, how many... Six months. Yeah, how many Bitcoiners you have on the app just within six months? Too many. Too many? I need to increase prices. <laughs> so we have less. Well... Yeah, it's it's kind of mind-blowing, honestly. I was thinking the other day with my wife. So we have lifetime membership that goes for $100. Mm. And 
We also we have a Gigashan membership that goes for half a million sats that today are it becomes almost thirty thousand will be at hundred and fifty dollars. And I have hundreds of people that have paid hundred dollars or more to join an app. When every single app is free. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. Twitter is free, Facebook is free, Telegram is free, YouTube is free. Okay. It's mind-blowing, honestly. It's sometimes uh, if I step outside of my bubble and I and I see, oh, there's hundreds of people that pay a hundred, like a hundred dollars, not nothing. Yeah. Um, to join an app that you don't even know what you're going to get once you get inside because we don't show you anything. We don't show, oh, in your area, you're going to have mm. 50 people. Okay, I'll pay a hundred dollars, two dollars. Okay, whatever. And obviously, when you, when you launch, uh, you start from zero. So we launched Pacific Bitcoin 2022, which was the the bottom of the bear market, by the way. We launched at the bottom of the bear market. Um, and we had zero users. I mean, we had some beta users, but whatever. And then we got picked up by Bitcoin Magazine when we launched. So on the first week, we had like 300 users in one week, right. which is great. But this is global. It's not a lot. Right. So in some countries, even today, I think, uh, like in Iceland, so there's a guy in Iceland. It's only him, as far as I know. Mm. So he's the only guy in Iceland. He's not going to meet anybody. But when he travels, it's great. He can meet people. If he goes to a big conference like Miami, you can be at the hotel. You don't have to pay the tickets for the conference. And you can be at the hotel, and the paywall is very counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But I'm, but uh, when when I will sell this company or whatever, retire from CEO, I will write a book about the paywall because the paywall solves so many problems and have so many back uh, on order. And okay, I give an example. I'm pretty sure. We made the record for hundred star, sorry, hundred five star reviews in less than a hundred days from launch. So Orange Philip, when he was hundred days old, had more than a hundred five star reviews, which has gotta be a record. Mm, being a paid app. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's gotta be a record for any right. app because you don't. Like, I don't know, do you, are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, yeah. Have you left a review on Twitter, on the App Store? No, I don't think so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, I don't. Like, most people don't leave reviews mm, yeah. on the App Store. They're more, more, more inclined they to make bad reviews than good ones. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, of course, this is, uh, this is for all kinds of reviews, mm-hmm. right? Yelp, anyway. There's a bias. If you're really unsatisfied, you're going to vent, whatever. Yeah. Orange Philip, when it was 100 days old, had more than 100 five-star reviews, which I'm very confident he has to be a record. Now, why is that? What do you think is that? Because it's not the best app ever. I think you're, you're tapped into the market with a much-needed product that people are craving for for a long time. Um, so you've pinpointed a need a social need that Bitcoiners have and 
but that are lacking. Um, and like I said, I was genuinely blown away by how smooth the, the app worked. Um, I guess it's, Thank it's you. a matter of great content, like great connections people have made. And I think partially that that's because of the paid wall, because right now I see the problem with, um, with Twitter or even with Nasser in a way that I've, I've right. been identifying some bots on there. Um, I've seen some, uh, well on Twitter, that's yeah, it's a lot. definitely a lot. Um, and even on Nostra, I've seen bots and yeah. taking up pages, Don't get me started on <laughs> pages on pages of just nonsense. Um, so I think that by implementing the paywall, you definitely eliminate that noise. Um, yeah. ultimately create a really good experience for people do pay for it and that they can see the value of, of the, the membership they pay. And the other day I was, I was on the orange Bowl app Twitter and I see, um, there's a comment, basically you guys were saying Bitcoiners are the people to understand value for value. Um, so you, you've picked a great demographic that gets the fundamentals of, of this very idea and are willing to um, be a part of and contribute to the community. Um, and that's a great, the great scene to have. Well, well, yes, I didn't pick a demographic, <laughs> first of all. It's not like I should, oh, you know, I should do this up for Bitcoiners or Fisher man. It's not like that, but it's just not that I picked. It's just, you know, that's what I am. And that's the product that I wanted to get for myself. Anyway. The the answer to the to the hundred star reviews is the paywall. Mm -hmm. So the paywall completely um, aligns the incentives of the users with the creators of the app. Now, if you join an app to meet other people, you would like to meet other people. That's the whole point. Now, the more people are on this app, the higher the chance you're going to meet somebody that you actually have a good time with. Mm -hmm. So your interest as a user of the app is that there are as many people as possible. Yeah. Now, one, one of the ways to get more people to the app is to leave a review. Five-star reviews. Because then the algorithm on the app store is going to promote this app. So, because you paid to join an app, especially at the beginning, because, you know, think about it, 100 days is three months, so most likely you joined the app and there was nobody nearby. And yet, you still leave a five-star reviews, which is completely counterintuitive. You should leave a zero-star review and say, well, I joined an app, I paid for it, and I didn't meet anybody. Zero-star review. Yeah. No. No. This is, you know, this is second order consequence. You know, third, you know. Yeah, no, you paid for an app. Now you want to get value out of the app. So you're going to do everything you can to make sure that the app that you paid for is successful. You're going to leave a five-star reviews. Just like being in Bitcoin, you, you're a Bitcoiner and then you, you actually benefit from more people being in Bitcoin. Right. From the network, yes, correct, exactly. It's it's a self, it's a self, uh, uh, self incentive alignment. Mm. 
So if I didn't have a paywall, let's say, let's think from first principle. So let's say I do Orange Lab without the paywall. Now, what would be my business model? Ads. Obviously. If it's free, then you're the product, I have right? To, right. Uh, from, from my point of view, from the creator, right? If I'm not charging the user directly, I have to charge them indirectly because yeah. somebody has to pay. Now, if I were doing ads, if I was doing ads on Orange Flap, which I could have done, that model, I could have said, okay, you know, we got to do ads. Like every social network is free. Get as many users as you can. And then you monetize their data. If I did that, then my incentive would be for Vivian to spend as much time as possible in the app. Instead, for Vivian to find somebody in the app and then go offline, which is your goal in downloading the app. 100%, yeah. Your goal with Orange Bill app is to go offline. If I was doing ads, my goal would be the exact opposite of your goal, which is, which is one of the many points of the advertising model that the, the incentives of the uh, platform owner and the incentive of the uh, platform users for supply and demand, we always go back to supply and demand, are completely opposite. With the paywall, we have the same incentive. I want you to find a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever you want and close the app and go out and have a great time. Because if you have a great time with somebody you met through the app, you're most likely going to keep staying on the app and you're going to recommend and you're going to leave a five-star reviews and this and that. So the, the incentive alignment can only happen with a paywall. Mm, for sure. With you paying, with you paying to join the network and me getting paid if you get values on the network. So now we both want the same thing. We both want you, the user, to have as much value as possible from the network and you want to get as much more, as much value from the network. It's the same exact incentive. But now we are team members yeah. and that's why you're going to leave a five-star reviews and that's why you're going to tell everybody about this app and that's one of the reasons why we've been so successful because the people that join, they're not the users. There are team members. We're all on the same team mm -hmm. here. We're all working. And then, of course, you can add the... Uh, you, can always, you can also say, uh, if all you care is about Bitcoin price, let's say. Yeah. You don't care about meeting Bitcoiners. You don't care about Orange Blood. You don't care about anything but Bitcoin price. Okay. Do you think... So for Bitcoin price to go up, we go back to supply and demand. There has to be more people wanting to buy Bitcoin than selling. The price goes up. If it's vice versa, the price goes down. Now, if Bitcoin it just went down from sixty-nine thousand to fifteen thousand, do you think it's better for the price if you can meet another Bitcoin in real life and you can actually see somebody that is not oh, I'm not the only crazy person holding Bitcoin. I should sell it. It went down from 69 to 15. Oh, Vivian, we just met. She's a real human. We just had a great time together and we had the same conviction on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The more people with the conviction, 
the higher the price is going to go up. The less people with conviction, the lower the price is going to go. And so nothing gives conviction, as far as I know. Of course, education is very important. But meeting a Bitcoiners in real life, it gives you a lot of conviction. Because then you don't feel like, oh, I'm an idiot. Because everybody in my family is on a Bitcoiner. And they, they saw the price right. going from 6 oh, yeah. to 15. And they saw me losing all this money. I'm an idiot. I should sell now at least I got 15,000. Yeah. Yeah, right. Now, if you have this network that you can just plug in in real life, hey, let's get pizza. Hey, like I'm, I'm depressed, whatever. Let's go out and get and have a good time. Okay. Now, the network effect increases. Because you create this unrealized connection, mm-hmm. so there's all there's all of element to to Orange Pillow. There's many elements. That's why I want to write a book at some point that goes into these all these different elements that I that I, I've even I couldn't foresee. Because obviously, you know, you can't foresee. Like even Satoshi, I'm sure didn't foresee that Bitcoin mining would be a driver for renewable. I don't know. Maybe did. I don't know. There's you know so. Yeah, so the paywall create a unique experience, attract certain kind of people that will then help the network grow. Mm, for sure. But it's a it's a it's 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 a it's a flywheel. Yeah, that goes to the the social layer of Bitcoin you were talking about. How do you define the social layer of Bitcoin, and why do you think the social layer of Bitcoin is important? If you look at history. And if you look at all the ideas that have changed the world, which are most, most of them, they're religious idea, like Christianity and Islam and Judaism are the, as ideas, whether you believe in God or not, nothing has changed the world as much as those ideas. If you study them, you will see that they all have a social layer. The church on Sunday, the mosque on Friday, the synagogue on Saturday. So you need to have a social layer because we are social animals. Um, so as long as we stay humans, which I don't know, maybe it's not going to be for a long time, who knows. But if we stay humans, then we need a social component for an idea to become revolutionary. Like the Bitcoin, obviously, the idea of the separation of money and state, it's revolutionary. Like, so Bitcoin is a revolutionary idea. For revolutionary ideas to be able to succeed, you need to have a social layer because we are social animals. And again, conviction, uh, you can coordinate better, you, you can talk in private, which you cannot do online anywhere. You know, it gives a lot of, it gives a lot of uh, value to the idea to be able to, you know, like, and so. So in Bitcoin, you could see a lot of religious component. Mm. For example, the laser eyes. But the laser eyes is a, is a religious component. Now, most Bitcoiners would not like that. But if you are uh, a Muslim, let's say, you if you're a man, you wear a, a long bird. If you're a woman, you might have a burqa or some veil. Okay? This is a signal. You're signaling mm, right. that you're signaling. part of the same mm-hmm. tribe. If you're a Christian, you have the, the 
cross. If you're a Jew, if you're a Jew, you wear the the yarmulke. The signaling that allows you tribe members to identify each other as fast as possible. Oh, this guy is like me because he's a Muslim, yeah. or he's a you know. And you could you having different you know communists have their flags and their symbolism. So there's symbol. So the laser eyes is a religious phenomenon that is emergent from uh, from these ideas. Okay, how do we identify? So now, you so Bitcoin is a digital is a digital uh, that is a digital native idea. So we live mostly on, online. So how do I know that Vivian Honor? Oh, he has laser eyes. Right? It's the same thing of wearing a Yamaha. The same exact thing. Now, what is the Church of Bitcoin? Okay, you have conferences. Okay, you have meetup. Although ninety-five percent of people don't go to meetup, which is one of the reasons why Archdiocese is so successful. You know, because people don't want to go to meetup. They have lies, a like coordination problem, blah blah blah. And then you go to the meetup, she can't, so you're wasting your time. Anyway, and so yeah, so the social layer is crucial for Bitcoin to be successful. Like if we stay online, we're not gonna win. For sure, in order to win and to win election and to even build companies or products, you need to be able to meet the real lives because we're humans. Can you teach me how to say "fix the money, fix the world" in Italian? Fix the world in Italian. Uh, aggiusta i soldi. Aggiusta i soldi. Aggiusta il mondo. I don't think aggiusta might be the right perfect word. But yeah, it's close enough. Ajusa it sodi, ajusa il mondo. Thank you so much, Matteo, for joining me today. Um, I'm hyper optimistic on the growth of the Orange Pill app, and I think it is the place for Bitcoiners and even potential Bitcoiners to connect and help each other, uh, keep all of us company and supported during the epic journey um, of the Bitcoin adoption. And uh, if you haven't joined the app, please do so ASAP. Um, the app is now available on both Android and iOS devices. I'm already on the Orange Pill app, and everyone, please find me there and come say hi anytime. Um, to follow all the exciting progress of the app, you can find the Orange Pill app on Twitter at Orange Pill App. And to find Matteo, you can obviously spot him on the Orange Pill app as well as on Twitter, um, Matteo M A T T E O P E L L E G. Mattel, uh, before we hop off, any final notes you want to share with us at Live with Bitcoin? You can scan this QR code, by the way. If you want to download the app, this QR code right here, you can just scan it. Uh, nice. But yes, you can also search people in the app. So even if they're not close to me, thanks for the chat. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for joining again. And thanks everybody for tuning in. I'm your host, Vivian Chang, and this is Life with Bitcoin podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.